Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, if you will, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 5 again this morning as we study uh, Jesus' epic Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus just calls it the good news of the kingdom. And so if you would, grab your Bibles and turn there. Continuing this series, we'll cover a good bit of the New Testament this, uh, this morning. So on the screen now will be some scriptures we'll cover. I encourage you to take pictures of it. And also, if you're worried this is going to be a long sermon, you're right. It's going to be a long sermon. Uh, but my wife is upstairs with the babies, and so she texted me, for the sake of your wife, will you please not go long this morning? So, we'll see how lunch is. But, uh, all right, so let's, let's do this this morning. We're going to continue our, our study through what in Latin is called the Beatitudes. It's called the blessings for us, the blessings of Jesus. And here's our Beatitude for the morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's ask God for his help. God, we need you. Uh, this is your word written to your people, through your spirit, uh, but God, we need your help. We make a mess of this collection of scrolls far too often, and so we need your help to interpret it rightly, both for understanding and for application. So God, would you meet us here today through the power of your spirit? It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. How many of you are uh, board game people? You guys play board games, board game people? How many of you are like, you're card people instead of board game people? We know what card games mean, and I'm not going to let you tell us what games they are, because I know what you mean by that. We're in church, so you can't say it out loud, but if it involves chips, that's fine. All right, so I grew up uh, playing board games in my family. Uh, Meredith grew up playing cards, and I love cards. That's fun, too, but we grew up playing board games, and those of you board game people, you understand this. There's always one person. When you get the board game out and you open the box, there's always one person who says, hey, can I see the rules? You know that person? Yeah. The person says, hey, hey, we just give me the rules. You explain the rules to them. No, 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 I need to see it for myself. Can I see the rules? And so that person misses the first couple of turns because they're busy reading the rules. But we all know this about that rule person. They don't want to read the rules to know the rules. They want to read the rules to know the loopholes around the rules, don't they? You know that person? That person wants to read them to know the loopholes around them. Micah, do you know that person? All right, so that's what they want to know. And the whole idea of them, uh, they want to know, so they know what the exceptions are. And then at some point in the game, they will make some move that you are pretty sure is against the rules. And they will say, no, it doesn't, because in Article 12, Section C, it says that I can do that. Or at least it doesn't say that I can't do that. Those of you uh, like me who grew up playing outside, uh, you grew up making up games outside, and you made up rules, but only you knew the rules to the game. Everybody else knew the rules when they broke a rule. That's how you told them what the rules were. So here's the the deal. When it comes to loopholes and exceptions, uh, we have to be careful when it comes to studying Scripture with that mindset. So a couple weeks ago, taught on blessed are the meek. I got a number of questions afterwards, and some I think were genuine, just trying to figure out how to make sense of a few different things in Scripture. The number one question I got was, well, what do you do with Jesus turning over the tables in the temple? So I teach on meekness, and what many of you want to know is, yeah, but do I still have permission to flip over tables? 
Isn't that what you're asking? Like, I know the rules now, like, inside of that. Some of you genuinely were like, it, it kind of contradicts, help me make sense of it, and that's fine. But I think for many of us, what we're asking for is for permission. So if you're raising teenagers, you understand how sentences often begin with, yeah, but. You understand what I mean? Yeah, but. That's not, yeah, but I was just going to, yeah, but. So when we study scripture, I don't think we can be yeah, but kinds of people. Okay? I just don't think we can, because I think we missed the entire point. But we're wired to be loophole exception people. So when we're studying this passage this morning, I just need us to be um, less of that. And I just wonder if Jesus actually meant what he said when he says it. Like, I just wonder if he meant it. Like, I wonder if what he says he actually means when he says it. But first, let me handle some of the meek flipping table stuff first. Here's the first thing. The reason why it was powerful that Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple was because he rarely flipped over tables in the temple. Some of you flip over tables so often, no one even notices when you flip tables over anymore. You do. You rant online, you, uh, you throw up your fists at everybody, you complain about everything. Then you're like, I'm just doing what Jesus did. No, you're not, because you do that on the daily. And that's not how Jesus did. It was an exception for him, which is why it had so much powerful. Second, so much power. Secondly, it was pure. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. It came from a pure um, passion for God. So listen, if you can be pure like Jesus and flip over tables, flip them, man, flip them. I just have to question whether or not we have that same purity in our own hearts. And then remember this, a couple of days later, Jesus is on the cross and the first words out of his mouth are, Father, forgive them. So if you can flip tables and then a few days later say, but they don't know what they're doing, God, would you forgive them? Then I'm all for it. But I think we have to be careful with this exception. So here's the danger when it comes to Matthew 5, 7. The danger is to approach this verse with the same mentality. We read, blessed are the merciful, and we begin to think, yeah, yeah, but like for everyone? Like if I need to show mercy, does that, who does that apply to? Does that apply to everyone? Well, I'm, I'm going to believe that Jesus means what he says when he says it. I'm going to believe it. And I know it goes against a lot of things that we, our experiences and the way that we interpret life, but I think he means what he says. And one evidence for this is just based on the literary structure of how this sermon is written. So I'm going to nerd out with you for a bit. Ten of you will enjoy this. The rest of you will fall asleep and we'll wake you up when I'm done. Uh, throughout the scriptures, um, there's a literary device called chiastic structure or chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter X, which is called a chi. And so the idea is that you begin wide, you funnel to something, and then funnel on your way back out. It makes an X. That's the idea. And so we in the West, we write things in a way that builds to some big crescendo at the end. It's what we look for in movies and, and some songs and books. We look for the big moment at the end. Well, in Hebrew thought and in Jewish thought, the big crescendo often comes in the middle. Because when it comes in the middle, when that moment happens in the middle, it helps interpret the end. Does that make sense? So when it builds to the middle, it helps us interpret the end. These blessings, these beatitudes, are written as a chiasm. So I'm going to show you it on the screen as best as I can, just to help us understand. Again, very nerdy, but I think it's going to be important for us. So here's, here's what it would look like for us in chiastic structure. Here are these nine blessings or beatitudes that Jesus begins this epic sermon with. And so he begins with the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, Moves to blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And then right in the middle, the fifth of the nine, is blessed are the merciful. Then he makes his way back out. Blessed are the pure in heart and the peacemakers. 
those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then finally, those who are reviled and persecuted and slandered, Jesus says, for my sake or for the sake of Jesus. So this is what's called chiasm. So it all builds to the middle. And so it tells me this, we need this beatitude. We need this blessing to help us make sense of the first four and the last four. If we misinterpret this one, if we don't get this one right, I think we find ourselves in the place where a lot of churches are today, where a lot of Christians are today. This one matters for us. And the reason it matters is this next slide. So these uh, blessings go together. So the first and the ninth, we're going to pair them together. It's why it's chiastic. It all builds back out together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted and slandered for my sake. Wouldn't you agree? If you are reviled and persecuted and slandered for the sake of Jesus, you find yourself being poor in spirit? You find yourself being sad and broken down and, and bankrupt. I would imagine that's what happens. The next one, so Beatitude 2 and 8. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We talked about this before. We mourn over our own unrighteousness, over our own sin. And so then it's paired with when you are uh, persecuted for your righteousness, it leads us back into mourning. That's, that's the drive here. Beatitude 3 and Beatitude 6. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, meek people seek peace. That's how it works. In meekness, uh, meek people don't start conflict for conflict's sake. They don't start conflict to be right. They start conflict to find peace. Meekness leads us to peace. And now the fourth and the sixth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then blessed are the pure in heart. In hungering and thirsting, being so desperate for things to be made right in the world, that actually leads us to a single-minded or a single heart, being pure in heart, for they will see God. Do you see it? You see how they go together? If not, it's fine, but this is, this is how it's written. So then in the middle of all of this is blessed are the merciful. That's in the middle of all of it. So this merciful blessing is almost the filter by which we have to read the rest of them. It's all building to this idea of mercy which then makes its way back out. So here's another way to look at this chiastic structure. The first four of them, which will be on the screen right now, the first four of them all point to something we lack, something we need, that there's need and lack here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty, you're bankrupt. There's missing, there's something lacking. This is negative. It's not good to be poor in spirit. That hurts. Blessed are those who mourn. Why do you mourn? You mourn over loss, something that is missing, something you're lacking. Blessed are those who are meek. It's power under control, but ultimately it means uh, people who don't see themselves as important. This is what meekness is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You hunger and thirst because you don't have things to eat and drink. The first four point towards something we lack or something that is missing. It's negative. But the last four, blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, uh, those who are reviled and persecuted and slandered. These now point to something that is affirmative. This is evidence that something is right. And in the middle of all of that, again, is Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So here's what I'm saying. I think the path from the first four to the last four have to go through the river of mercy. If we don't walk through and wade through the river of mercy, we will never find ourselves pure in spirit, 
as peacemakers. We'll never find ourselves persecuted for righteousness. We'll never find ourselves being identified with Jesus if we don't first walk through the river of mercy. It's the path to get us there. The problem is that many of us are stuck because without this one, we get stuck at the previous blessing. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Many of us, the issue, we talked about it last week, is that we're longing for satisfaction and we're manipulating the word and ways of God to bring about our own selfish satisfaction. We're stuck here. We're stuck here. We, we see the need in the world. We see the need in our own heart. And what we think the need is, is satisfaction. So we manipulate to try to obtain satisfaction. We even try holy things to be satisfied. And many of you today, you would say you're trying to do the right things, but you don't find yourself satisfied. I would say it's because you're longing for satisfaction rather than for actual righteousness. Righteousness is a byproduct, not something that we long for. So how do we know? How do we know that we are stuck here? Well, I think first is this that we've become quick to point out everyone else's unrighteousness and slow to admit our own. How do you know you're stuck at blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, you're so quick at pointing out other people's faults, but you won't admit and deal with your own. And sure, verbally, you'll say, yeah, I know I got some stuff, but you're not willing to deal with it. You're not willing to, to accept the fact that maybe your stuff caused someone else's stuff. I think sometimes we know we're stuck because we say things like, I really wish my husband was here to hear that message. You ever feel that way? Man, I wish my son was here. He could have used that today. What that's saying is, man, I hunger and thirst for their righteousness. I feel like I'm pretty satisfied with mine. The way we know that we're stuck here is that we become great judges of other people's sins, but great lawyers of our own. How do we know? How do we know we haven't passed through the river of mercy? Well, we're great at judging the sins of others, but we advocate and defend our own. So I want you to picture for me somebody who is always late. They're late to meetings, they're late to work, they're late to your family gatherings. You know somebody like that. You say, hey, we're gonna eat, we're gonna eat 11.30 and they get there at 1.30 and don't understand why you're upset. So I want you to think about somebody like that. You can, if you wanna say their name out loud, don't, but you think about that person that's always late. So when that person shows up late to work or to a meeting, in your mind, your mind goes to judgment. They are so lazy. I can't believe they got here late again. Um, it's all they ever do is get here late. Uh, they, they probably have some crazy excuse. I can't believe it. But God forbid, you're late to a meeting or you're late to work or you're late to a family gathering, and what do you do? Traffic was just so bad. I mean, that train again, that train. You guys know the train, the train. The train got stuck, then I couldn't get there. Um, I just had the worst morning. It was just so hard for me to get there. You know how my wife is. She takes forever to get ready, right? We are great judges of other people's sins. When it comes to ours, man, we're great lawyers about it. So how do you know? How do you know you haven't passed through the river of mercy? You're so quick to judge other people's sins and so quick to defend your own. You've got excuses for yours? Well, if you were raised like I was raised, you would feel this way too. That person flies past you on the interstate and you're judging them for how they're driving and you tell them you're number one and they drive past you. You're judging them and then you do it because you're late to get somewhere. 
It's like, what, I'm late. Don't, don't do that to me. Isn't that what we do? So how do we know? This is how we know. All right, so then we have to deal with this question. Then, well, then what is mercy? What, what is mercy? We give us a definition. Here's how we're going to define mercy this morning. It's the attitude and actions of kindness towards the undeserving. What is mercy? Well, it's attitude and actions of kindness towards the undeserving. So that's how we define it. But the question for us is how does the Bible define mercy? And it gets tricky for us because of the languages that are used. The New Testament written primarily in Greek. This would have been uh, here in Greek from Matthew. And the word that Matthew uses, that Jesus used, but that is translated into Greek here, is the Greek word eleo. You can say it, it's fun. Eleo. Good. I'm proud of seven of you. It means to um, bring help to the afflicted or to bring aid. It's what mercy is. Eleo means to provide help, to help the afflicted or to bring aid to somebody. And like we talked about this before, with Greek words, there's always the dictionary definition, then there's the story behind the definition. This word is actually the same word that's used for olive oil. It's the same root that is the word for olive oil. If you pay attention to Scripture, olive oil is mentioned a lot. It's what is used. You add some frankincense and myrrh to it, and it becomes anointing oil, this olive oil. Uh, Olive presses and olive fields, the whole thing. The idea here is that olive oil would have been used if you have a wound, someone would take um, some olive oil and then they would pour it into your wound, onto your wound, and then they would massage that oil into the wound and it would create a soothing effect. It would soothe and nurture and ultimately lead to healing. So when we read mercy, it's to bring help to the afflicted, it's to bring aid, but ultimately it's this idea of the oil that brings healing. It soothes. That's what mercy does. Those of us who have experienced the mercy of somebody else, you understand how that soothes and heals. Like it, it heals that wound. But what it means for us is that mercy is an act both of the heart and the hands. It's both. Mercy is the idea of being moved with compassion. That's the heart, that you're moved towards something. But it also means that you actually do something about it. Mercy is not either or, it's the both and. It's the heart, but it's also uh, the hands. So we live in a world that loves to send thoughts and prayers and good vibes to people. Great. I'm great that people are moved with so much compassion they want to tweet about it. That's amazing. The problem is, that's not mercy. That's pity. Like, to feel sorry or feel sad for somebody, that's that's not mercy, that's pity. So that's just the heart. On the flip side, many of us have grown up in church, so we understand that actions speak louder than words, and so we do the right thing. We do acts of mercy, but if we're honest, we don't have a heart of mercy that follows it. So you'll bring a meal to somebody who just had a baby, who had just had surgery. You'll provide a meal for somebody um, after a funeral. You'll do all those things, but you're doing it begrudgingly. That also is not mercy. To do merciful things without a merciful heart is not mercy. It's both the heart and the hands. This is what mercy actually is. And mercy is reserved for someone who has the power to do something about it. That's what mercy is. So let me give us a real life example. Let's say somebody offends you and um, you haven't haven't talked to that person in a while, but you talk to somebody who has talked to that person and they come to you and say, "I, I think you were right. I can't believe what this person has done. They did it again. You told me they did it to you, and now they've done it again. You've got a moment right here of what you're going to do, how you're going to handle the situation. 
And if you're like me, you love to say, I told you so. Like, I've been trying to tell you how awful this person is. I don't understand why it took you so long. It had to happen to you for you to believe me. But mercy is saying something like, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, been, a rough, it's been a rough go for them. Like, you can understand. Like, I'm sure that's not really what they meant when they said that. Do you understand? Like, you had the power to completely cripple them uh, as far as their reputation goes. But instead, the mercy was, no, no I'm going to extend kindness to someone. Not because they deserve it. They don't but to extend kindness. It's an act of both the heart and the hands. But the Bible is not just in the New Testament, it's also the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures are written in Hebrew. And the first translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the first language, is what's called the Septuagint. Again, super nerdy, just bear with me. We gain a lot of understanding from figuring out and learning how the first translators translated Hebrew words into the Greek. Because Hebrew has such a diverse and powerful vernacular that sometimes it's helpful. So while the Greek word is eleo, when the translators translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, there were two different Hebrew words that they translated into the Greek word eleo. And the first one is the Hebrew word hesed. And I love this. This is one of my favorite words of Scripture. What it means is steadfast love. That's how it's mostly translated, steadfast love, or loving kindness, some of your translations say. The idea is an active, unconditional, stubborn kind of presence. That's the idea. That I'm not going anywhere. That's what hesed is. It's steadfast. It's not leaving, not changing, not going anywhere. So when they translate, the Septuagint translators moved it from Hebrew to Greek, the first Hebrew was hesed. They translated then into eleo. The second Hebrew word was the word rachum. And in Hebrew, this is the idea of compassion. It's the bowels. It's being deeply moved, rachum. But the root of that word is the word for womb, where a baby grows in a mama's tummy, the womb. And so what's communicated here is the motherly affection towards their child. And mamas, you hurt for your kids like no one can hurt for your kids. This is the idea. It's a parental motherly affection. So the first, the active steadfast love, and secondly, the move of compassion reminds us, again, mercy is an act of both the heart and the hands. It's both and. And we see this displayed in the Old Testament. We just studied Exodus all last year, and I'm sure you haven't memorized, so I'm just preaching to the choir here. But in Exodus uh, 32, 33, and 34, the people of God have really broken the heart of God, and they're desperate um, they're just, they're angry. And God's angry. And so God makes a declaration. I'm not going with you to the promised land. Like, you can have it. I promise that to you. I'm faithful to my word to give it to you. But I'm not going to go with you. Like, I'm going to remove my presence. You've been so rebellious and stiff-necked and disobedient. I'm saying they were. I'm not saying we are. I'm saying they were back then. We've grown so much. Uh, but God, you got the promised land. You, you can't have me. And so Moses climbs Mount Sinai and intercedes for his people. He says, God, remember who you are. And Moses tells God, if we get the promised land and not you, we don't want it. We'd rather have you and not the promised land. We want you. Please go with us. And so God relents and he decides, I will go with you. I will go with you into the promised land. And then Moses feels like a little too big for his riches. Like God answered that prayer. Let me ask for another one. And so Moses says, hey, while I'm at it, um, since I have your favor now, would you show me your glory? And God's like, I can't, I can't show you all of that. You'll die. But here's what I can do. 
I'm gonna pass before you. I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'm gonna pass by you. And when I pass by, what will be left in my wake is the bit of my glory you can see. I'm gonna show you where I was. I'm gonna show you the wake of my glory. So the next day, um, God comes through and God shows Moses his glory. Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, Rahum, a God deeply moved with compassion and gracious, slow to anger and abounding or rich in hesed, steadfast love. So he is merciful. He is rachum. He, is, uh, he is affectionate towards us in the way a mama is affectionate towards her baby. But he's also rich in hesed and faithfulness. Notice what's happening. Where the presence of God leaves, what is left in his wake is mercy. Not judgment, mercy. Where God just was, what is left is the residue of mercy, rachum and hesed. And both of those words are translated as eleo in the Septuagint. So let me help us again. First is this, mercy is not passive approval. Mercy does not give permission. Mercy is not saying, oh, that wasn't so bad. Like, I know you hurt me and offended me, but not a big deal. We have a rule in our house that if someone apologizes, confesses and apologizes to you, you cannot say it's okay. It is not okay that your sister hurt you. It's not okay that your brother hit you. That's not okay. In the very same way, mercy is not passing, oh, it's fine. Do it again. Not a big deal. It's not. But in our house, what you do say is, I forgive you. There's a debt I'm not going to hold it against you. I forgive you. Not allowed to say it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay that you were abused. It's not okay that you were hurt. It's not okay that you were lied to and betrayed. That is not okay. Mercy is not saying, ah, that's that's okay. Mercy is not giving permission for it to happen again. It's not passive approval. Mercy is active presence. It's active presence. Because here's our inclination when we've been hurt is to remove our presence. But mercy says, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, you hurt me. You betrayed me. You broke my trust. And I'm going to do everything I can while you rebuild that to stay here with you. That's what mercy is. It's active presence. You saw it here in Exodus 34. God says, I'm removing my presence. No, no, no. I'm going with you. You've been disobedient and rebellious and stiff-necked. But in my mercy, I will have said you. I will stay here. I'm not going anywhere. It's active presence. Well, Jesus speaks of mercy a lot uh, in his ministry. In Luke chapter 10, um, there are scribes, lawyers who've come to Jesus. And if there are any loophole exception people in the Bible, it's these men. They've come to Jesus. They said, hey, listen, there's 614 Old Testament Jewish laws. Which of them is the most important? Trying to trick him and catch him. And Jesus, like he does, says, okay, there's two of them. There's two great commandments. The first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus leaves himself open to the lawyers. And here's the question they ask. Luke chapter 10, verse 29. This lawyer, this scribe, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Let me see the rules. Let me see the rules again. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus brilliantly doesn't answer his question with an answer, but with a story. So Jesus tells this story. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest. Now remember, a priest is someone who has been set apart. They've been sanctified for, uh, for a purpose. And this purpose was to intercede, was to show the people what God is like and show God what the people are like. That's how he intercedes. And in the process of that, he has had to be consecrated. He's had to be set aside. So he's had to go undergo ritual cleansing. There are things he has to avoid, but he is supposed to represent God to the world. And Jesus says, there's this man who's left for dead, and now there's a priest who comes by as it would happen. A priest goes down that road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, the Jewish scribe and scholars are what? Well, that okay. And so that makes sense. Next, Likewise, a Levite, the second man, he came to the place and he saw the man half dead and he passed by on the other side. Levite has a tradition of being set apart. He hasn't cut his hair in years. He hasn't eaten certain things. He's abstained from certain kinds of clothing. All of that to prove his holiness and worth before the Lord. And so he is not about to compromise his holiness and his reputation and tradition to show mercy towards someone. So he passes by on the other side. But, Jesus says in verse 33, a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan uh, to a Jew was considered a half-breed, and they are hated. They are despicable creatures, no longer even considered human to most of the Jews. And so this Jewish scholar, this scribe, this lawyer, hears Jesus say, yeah, but here comes the hero, and the hero is a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to the place where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He was moved in his guts. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil, Elias, pouring oil on him and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. Didn't call a friend, didn't call an Uber. He took him. He got all that stuff on his upholstery, all of it. And he took him and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. A day's wages for a skilled worker would have been one denaro, one per day, but he gives him two days' worth of wages to the innkeeper. And he says, take care of him. And if you spend more, I will repay you when I come back. So now as he's just leaving him, he's going to pay for him to be um, taken care of, and he's going to come back to get him. And then Jesus asked this question, who is my neighbor? Here's the question. Which of these three do you think? The priest, the holy one, the one that represents God, the Levite, the one who had given his life to being set apart, or the Samaritan, the half-breed, the half-human, that one. Which one do you think, lawyer, expert in the Jewish law, which one do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And at this point, like, you know, he knows. But you can't say, well, I think it's the priest. No, he knows. And so the scribe replies, he said, the one who showed him Elias. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So how does Jesus describe mercy? Well, mercy is active presence. He didn't pass by. He saw someone hurting and he had the means to help and so he did. He didn't pass by based on his holiness. He didn't pass by based on his reputation. He instead got himself dirty got his animal dirty. Not only was it active presence, but mercy absorbs the price. He paid for everything. He used his olive oil and his wine. And I know inflation has tripled our grocery bills. It's like saying, and he dumped out a carton of eggs to help the man. That's what, that's what it's like. 
He absorbed the price of the oil and the wine. He absorbed the price of his animal. He absorbed the price of his time. He absorbed the price of being in the inn by taking two days worth of salary and paid for this man and then said, I'm coming back. Didn't leave him. I'm going to come back. I'm going to revisit. And if you need more money, I will help you. He's a day worker. He doesn't own anything. He's a day worker. He's going to come back and help. Mercy is active presence that absorbs the price. It absorbs the price. Mercy doesn't punt the pain down the road. Mercy absorbs the pain and instead pours out kindness. That's what mercy does. But the truth is, we're not merciful people because judgment is easier. It costs us less, doesn't it? Like it costs less for the priest to walk by on the side of the road. It didn't cost him any time or money or reputation. If the priest would have touched the man bleeding and half dead, he would not have been clean enough for service in the temple. So he would have had to undergo some sort of ritual cleansing. So he decided, ah, it's more important than the man, right? My religion, my role is more important than him, so I'm going to pass by. The Levite said, it's not, listen, I've, I've given my whole life, I'm not going to compromise my whole life's reputation to help this man. Judgment is easier, it costs us less. But here's the sad truth. You know what else costs us less? Going to church. Church attendance costs us less than mercy. Singing costs us less than mercy. It costs your neighbors more, but it costs you less. The truth is, you came here today and it cost you anything. It cost you a little bit of gas, a little bit of time, but what else are you gonna do on a Sunday morning? It didn't cost you anything. You called it worship, but it didn't cost you anything. In fact, for many of us, tithing costs us less than actually showing mercy to somebody. This man, this Samaritan, could have paid 10% of his wages and it still would have been less than what he paid for this man. Problem is, none of those things are listed in the character of God. We don't learn that God is faithful in church attendance or that he sings well or that he tithes. What we know about God is that he is rich in mercy. But many of us, the problem is, we've grown too comfortable with reading our Bibles, singing our songs, and giving our money and then walking out of these doors, withholding mercy and forgiveness. Because it's easier, isn't it? Come play the game. And then go out and be just like the world. And right now, I know there are people in your mind that you know you need to show mercy to, you need to make a phone call, send a text, set up a lunch. And you will hear this and think you've done something and go out in the world and you will get mad at somebody who doesn't wait their turn at the four-way stop. You'll get mad at your waitress this, morning, this afternoon at lunch because they didn't bring you what you wanted when you needed it. You're withholding grudges. Listen, God's not interested in our singing if we're not going to be merciful towards the sinner. So I think Jesus would speak to many of us as modern-day Pharisees. You're in the South. You've grown up here. You understand the words of God, and yet we're not doing it. So in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he tells them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, I love you, but to sit here and sing songs about mercy and to sing about look where I'm standing now and to go out there and treat somebody like they'll never be standing where you're standing is hypocrisy. To sit here and listen to the word of God and then tell yourself it doesn't apply to you is hypocrisy. As it is written, Jesus says, quote from Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. 
you leave the commandment of God, Jesus continues, and you hold to the tradition of men. And if that hurts your toes, let it. Let it. You'd rather be a priest or a Levite than a Samaritan. And you say, yeah, well, they don't deserve my mercy. No one deserves mercy. That's the whole point. Well, I'll give mercy as soon as they give me some respect. That's not how it works. You'd rather hold the tradition of men than this commandment of God to be merciful. Jesus says again in Luke, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Jesus continues in Mark chapter 7. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You know what we like better than mercy? An air-conditioned room and padded seats. You know what we like better than mercy is songs we can sing to. You know what we like better than mercy? When the Bible makes us feel good about ourselves. The thing is that mercy is the way of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus is saying, this whole sermon is, there's two kingdoms now, I came to bring a new one. There's a kingdom of the world and a kingdom of heaven. Mercy is not the way of the kingdom of the world. Are you paying attention? The way of the world is vengeance and hypocrisy and cancel culture. The way of the world says, I know you've been in this job for 30 years, but we found, we found something you posted on Facebook when you were 12, so you're fired. The way of the kingdom says, yeah, but... I remember what it was like to be 12 too. The way of the, of the world says, no, no, you hurt me, I'm done with you. And the way of the kingdom says, you hurt me, I'm sure that came from somewhere. I've hurt people before too. I forgive you. The way of the kingdom is mercy because mercy is evidence of the kingdom. It's evidence of our salvation. So here's where it's gonna get fun for a lot of us. James chapter two our Bibles um, break things into sections and give new headings, and I think we lose actually what's being said there. So here's James chapter 2, verse 13. James says to the church in Jerusalem, judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then he says, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is better than. Mercy wins the day when fighting against judgment. And most of our Bibles stop there and start a new paragraph, but James doesn't. This is, a, this is a letter, and he continues. For what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it if somebody says they're moved by compassion but doesn't show it? Can that faith save him? What good is it if somebody says, yeah, but I've read the Bible and I sing the songs and yet doesn't love his neighbor? What good is it if somebody says, well, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but my neighbor, he can, I can take it or leave it? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, if someone is afflicted and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, which is a very Jewish colloquial way of saying, good luck. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then James continues, see also that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So hear me closely. If you lean towards judgment over mercy, I love you enough to tell you, you need to question your salvation. If you'd rather judge and criticize and condemn and tweet and Facebook, if you'd rather do all of that than to extend an act of mercy, I just wonder whether or not you know Jesus. As for me, 
in knowing Jesus, if I'm gonna get it wrong, I'm gonna get it wrong on the side of mercy all day long. Our God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And James makes the point. Sure, sing the songs, read the book, pray the prayers. But if there's no mercy, James would say, your faith is dead. It's dead. If you're slow to forgive, just wonder if we know Jesus. If we're quick to judge and condemn, I just wonder. And Jesus makes this point in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus um, is teaching, given a number of teachings, and he makes kind of an offhanded comment about if somebody offends you and then how it should be handled within the church. Well, Peter, if there was ever a loophole exception person, it's Peter, is it not? Like, Peter's like, give me the rules. Give me the rules. And so Peter hears this, and Peter comes to Jesus after that sermon and says, hey, listen, I heard you mention something about if somebody offends you, somebody sins against you. And then Peter, like Peter does, says, hey, so here's my guess, right? My guess is you're going to tell me if somebody offends you, and I'm going to ask you how many times to forgive, you're going to say seven, aren't you? Like seven? Because for a Jew, seven is the number of perfection and holiness. Like the rabbis only asked for three times. And Peter's like, shoot, I can double that plus one. So Peter says, so pat me on the head, Jesus. Tell me I'm a good boy. Seven, right? Seven times to forgive somebody? And then Jesus says, oh, sweet Peter. Uh, No, it's actually 70 times seven. To which those of us in the crowd who are loophole exception people say, so that's 490. So if somebody offends me 491 times, I don't have to forgive. Don't you do that? You You got a tally somewhere on your wall, you know. Like I'm at 488, man. Three more times, I'm in. And Jesus then says, no, no, it's got to be seven times 70. So then Jesus again tells a story. And Jesus tells a story about a servant who owes a king a lot of money. The modern day equivalent is 3.5 billion with a B dollars that he owes the king. As Americans, we understand what it's like to have deficit like that. So the king, the man goes to the king and he gets on his knees and he begs, God, King, please, master, forgive me. I can't, there's no way to pay this back. Let me just say this to you. Uh, for many of us, that's a debt that we could never pay back. But if, if you um, are here today and you can just write a check to pay that debt off, Daryl and I would love to talk to you after the service. We've got a few things that need to get done. So it's a lot, right? Like you, we're not gonna pay back $3.5 billion. So the king forgives the man of his debt. And the man immediately then runs to one of his co-laborers, another servant, who owes him the modern-day equivalent of $5,000, which if, if you're like me, feels like a lot of money. But compared to $3.5 billion, it's not a whole lot of money. And the servant comes to that servant and says, listen, I can't, I don't have the money. Like, you know how much money we make. I can't pay you back for that. There's no way. Please forgive me of the debt that I owe. And the first servant says, I can't. And he has him thrown in prison until he pays the debt off. I don't know how prison works. Haven't been there. I've seen some videos. But I'm pretty sure it's hard to pay back debts while you're incarcerated. And so word gets out back to the king that this servant has treated another servant with such poor judgment. So in Matthew chapter 18, the king comes. Matthew 18 verse 32. His master, the king, summoned the first servant and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You want to play that game? I'll play that game with you all day long, the king says. 
And then Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do this to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How are we doing? I think too often we're more like the first servant who have had a massive debt forgiven by our king. And someone says a snide comment, someone breaks our heart, someone betrays us, and we think it's okay to punish them forever. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Mercy, that's what it means. Yeah, but, no, yeah, but. If you're following Jesus, you're full of mercy. It's interesting that Matthew, one of the gospel writers, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four of them use some form of the Greek word eleios 28 times in the gospels. Over half of them are in the book of Matthew. There's something about mercy that Matthew just can't seem to get over. That gets the predominant theme throughout his book. And I'm going to tell you why. Matthew chapter 9, we read this. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on, he saw a man called Matthew, the author of this book, sitting at the tax booth. Matthew is a tax collector. A tax collector, he's a Jewish tax collector, which means he's a Jew who is now working for the oppressor, for the Roman government. And he's taking advantage of the Jewish people. He has sacrificed his religion, his tradition, for money and for comfort. And he is hated by the Jews. So much so that they don't believe that a tax collector can be brought back to repentance. They associate tax collectors in the same way they would associate addicts and prostitutes. This is who he is. So Jesus walks by and sees Matthew, the author of this book, sitting at a tax collecting booth. And he said to him, follow me. Every good Jewish boy longs to hear those words from a rabbi, and Jesus does, and he rises and follows him. And then Jesus reclined at table in the house. Then Jesus has a meal in a house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners. Now, sinners is not just a generic term. It refers to those, to the addicts and to the prostitute, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I want you to picture this. Jesus is on his side at a table, and he is surrounded by people of ill repute. None of them wearing khakis and a polo. Not one of them. No cowboy boots among them, none of them. And they've come and they've sat down. They're drawn to Jesus. Are they drawn to Jesus because of his teaching? Are they drawn because of his miracles? They don't need miracles. What they're drawn to is his mercy. And they're reclining with him at the table. And the Pharisees saw this. And they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew, how does he know this? Well, Matthew's in the group. Matthew's at the table. Matthew is a tax collector sitting around the table with Jesus. But when Jesus heard it, verse 12, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he tells the Pharisees, he quotes from Hosea in the Old Testament, which is a, a parable of sorts, where Hosea, a prophet, is told to uh, marry a prostitute. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire Eliaos and not sacrifice. You know, you've heard this before, Pharisees. You know the book of Hosea. Now learn what it means. This is what it means. This is Hosea 6 right here. I desire mercy 
not sacrifice. What's interesting is that Greek word for sacrifice can also be translated victims. I want mercy, not victims. I want mercy. I want you to kick people while they're down. Mercy, olive oil that soothes a wound. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why does Matthew feel so strongly about mercy? Because he was shown mercy, that's why. Because he can't get over the fact that he had a meal with the Messiah. Why is he so emphatic about this loving kindness of Jesus? Because it was the thing that transformed his life. It wasn't good teaching. It wasn't a miracle he saw. It was this. It was the active presence of Jesus in his life, and he knew he didn't deserve it. It was his story. Sadly, many of us are here today, and we're stuck. We're stuck hungering and thirsting for righteousness that we might be satisfied. We're stuck trying to satisfy ourselves using God. So you come week after week and you go to a small group and you're a deacon or you're an elder and you're just begging God to satisfy. And you would never admit it, but you aren't satisfied. And you've grown to be a miserable person. You're angry all the time. You're frustrated. You're judgmental. Maybe it's not outwardly, but inwardly. You can't believe the state of the world and you're so angry about it. You're looking for exceptions and loopholes in the word of God. You're looking for excuses to judge and you need a permission to hold a grudge. The Bible will never give you permission to hold grudges. Never. And we're miserable about it. We're clinging so tightly to some hurt in the past that we have become the prisoner. And you're singing songs about mercy and the goodness of God and somebody should tell your face that you're singing those songs. We're miserable. So what do we do? How do we stir up mercy in our souls? Let me give us three quick pieces of application as Brandon comes up. I think the first thing we have to do is see our own story. You gotta glance in your rear view, in the rear view mirror. It's the parable of the unforgiven servant. You've gotta remember, you owed God $3.5 billion and you pleaded with him he said, I got it. My son will pay for that with his life. In a number of his letters, Paul reminds the churches, don't forget that you too once were a drunkard, an idolater, and an adulterer. Don't forget. Don't stare back there, but just remember. How do you stir up mercy in your heart? Well, we gotta remember our own story. Remember where you've come from, which means I would encourage you to tell your story. Give your testimony. Let people know I haven't always been this way. This hasn't always been my heart. I used to hate people of a different color than me. Say that. Tell people that. I used to despise this. I used to be addicted to this. I used to wrestle with this. I used to love to gossip. Remember your own story. I think secondly, we have to see the other person's story as well. Right? We're really good about using our story to justify our circumstances. And we view other people and we view them as a snapshot. The lives are not pictures, lives are videos. This is not to excuse sin. Sin is never excusable. But sometimes where you, when you understand the story behind someone else's sin, it gives you compassion for that person. 
like that boss that treats you like garbage and thinks, thinks that they're God's gift to that company, you know what their story is? Their daddy always told them they'd never amount to anything. They grew up with coaches telling them how awful they were. And so now they're finally not awful and they wanna make sure they hold that spot. Is it okay they treat you that way? It's not okay, but you can give them mercy. That girl in your high school that's promiscuous, you know who she is. You make fun of her, you call her names. You wanna know why she's that way? Because when she was four years old, she was abused. You wanna know why she's that way? She's desperate to be loved by somebody. And she thinks that's the only way to get it. And when you know her story, it gives you mercy, compassion for her. You wanna know why your husband has a hard time working all day and then coming home and giving even more of what he has to you? It's because at work he's beaten up all day long. Is he excused the way he talks to you? No. But when you understand that, it gives you some mercy and compassion for him. We've gotta see our own story, we've gotta see their story. Jesus does this in John chapter four with the woman on the well, at the well. A woman comes in the middle of the day to get water. Jesus talks with her. And he asked about her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. She says, I know. In fact, you've had five of them and the man you're with right now is not your husband. But here's the story. In Jewish, in that Hebrew culture, a woman cannot divorce a man. A man can only divorce a woman. He can divorce a woman whenever he feels like. So five different times she's been divorced simply because the man felt like he didn't want to put up with her anymore. And so the man she's sleeping with right now, she's not going to get married to him. He's just going to do the same thing. So why would he? And the seventh man that he meets, the number she meets, the number of perfection happens to be Jesus. And Jesus says, I know, I know your story. I'm the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And she leaves and says, come meet the man who told me my story. He knew her story. He knew why she was how she was. And he extended mercy to her. She's the first person he told that he was the Messiah. But I think ultimately we have to know the story of God to take ourselves back to Exodus. He is rich in mercy towards you and towards me. Abounding in mercy means that he has more mercy than you have mess. And it never runs out. So your mess today, covered by his mercy. Your mess tomorrow, covered by his mercy. Your mess in 10 years, covered by his mercy. one issue for us is that we don't really know the gospel and so we think we've had to earn this mercy which means then we make other people earn our mercy that's not how the gospel works you haven't earned a thing yet by the grace of God he's extended mercy towards you and me broken sinners who had nothing to offer him and while you're striving to earn his love and favor and affection he's trying to tell you I already gave it to you now go and do likewise So I would say for us today, don't leave here trying to be more merciful. I want you to leave here in awe of the mercy of God towards you, a sinner. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the debt with the life of his son. And that when we are merciful, our eyes are opened to the great mercy of God. Blessed are those who are merciful 
for they will receive. They'll be open to receive more and more mercy. And maybe you've experienced that in your life. When you finally sat under the gospel, it's like all you see now is mercy. All you see now is the goodness of God. That's what Jesus means. It's the river of mercy that's gonna take us to the virtues of the last four Beatitudes. You bow your heads and close your eyes and let's finish up this morning. I don't know where you find yourself today, but I know in my humanity and probably in yours too, mercy is not easy. When we begin talking about mercy, we are prone to think in exceptions and loopholes and think about somebody who doesn't deserve your mercy. Absolutely correct. No one deserves mercy. That's the beauty of it. So maybe you've got a husband who has not treated you well. And maybe you feel like you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're doing it and you're doing it and you're doing it and he isn't doing his part. Well, listen, my friend, he's not here to do his part to satisfy you. You've been called to extend mercy. And you wanna know why he's struggling to do his part? Because he's got some trauma in his past that he still isn't over. And your husband, your wife, your kids, the world doesn't, meet, doesn't need the world's vengeance to kick them while they're down. The world needs the Lord's mercy to heal them where they're wounded. I don't know where you find yourself today, but I want to tell you this. That in your woundedness, you cannot earn the mercy of God. It's a free gift given to you. When God sent his son to die on the cross, it paid for all your sins in the past, present, and future. When Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins to him were future sins. They're all covered. That's mercy. He has every right to condemn us, and yet he doesn't. With active presence, he comes to meet us where we are. Maybe today you haven't given your life over to the mercy of God. You can today, you can quit your striving and running and trying to earn and just sit under the waterfall of the mercy of God that while you were yet a sinner, not when you cleaned yourself up, not when you got it figured out, not when you were better at church attendance and reading your Bible, but while you were the worst, he came to rescue. There's some of us here today who would proclaim that story to you 10 times over. But maybe today what you need is you need to walk out of this place not to a small group. You need to go get your phone and make a phone call, send a text, set up a lunch. You need to welcome somebody back. You need to give active presence to someone that you've abandoned. It's not permission. It's not passive. It's saying, I forgive you. You doing okay? Father, we love you. Uh, we love you because you are holy. And it's yet your mercy that somehow makes us love you even more. Like, I can't believe what you've given me. I know me. I know the depths of the darkness of my soul. I know the things I've done and the places I've been. I know it. I know the memories that haunt me of my sin. And yet you show me mercy. So God, would you forgive me where I held it back from other people? those places where I feel betrayed and hurt and denied, God, remind me that you're the king who forgave $3.5 billion of my debt. Help us as a church to sit under it today. Overwhelm us by your mercy. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.